It's finally here. Part two of my conversation with Joe Lumen, which I know many of you have been waiting all week to hear. If you haven't checked out part one, pause this and go get up to speed. This week, Joe shares more about decolonizing faith, politics, healthcare, and more. I'm Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Episode 6, Decolonized, Faith and Politics, Part 2. I work in social services and I've worked with some undocumented families and they're always really worried. Um, they're like, well, you know, I, are you going to, are you going to report me? And, um, and I, you know, and I'm like, no, I don't have to. And I don't want to. And even if I had to, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't have yeah. to mark, you know, I, um, I can ask you if you are, you know, if, if you are documented or undocumented, but you also don't have to answer. So, right. you know, I can always mark down decline to answer, but it, it changes it, for some of the families that I've worked with. It changes so much about the way that they um, are able to go about their daily lives. I've worked with uh, families where, you know, mom is a citizen of the United States and dad is undocumented. Mm-hmm. And mom goes everywhere and mom does everything and when they go on family outings it's we only go to certain places and we only do certain things because dad is so afraid that he is going to be ripped away from his family and that he's going to lose everything and yeah there's so much about that I think that when people talk about immigration and they want um some people talk about wanting immigration reform and some people talk about you know wanting to like um, tighten immigration laws and things like that. I I wish that they could meet real families and Me real too. people and have to interact with those people on a weekly basis and get to know them and see the way that they love each other and see the way that, hey, look, this is a family, just like the way that you love your family, they love their family. And do you actually think it's better to remove them? Because you're not just... Uh, you're you're not just harming one person you're harming entire swaths of people because you you are just ripping away everything that they love and now this is no longer a family unit now you've made a single mom and you've made children you know uh, not not have their dad in their life in their lives anymore and you've changed this entire family unit why why for the sake of a law right yeah because it doesn't benefit criminal. Yeah. No, no. And this is the thing. That's if they get caught and thrown, you know, mm-hmm. to like deported to wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of trauma that children are living into, mm-hmm. thinking all the time through the fear, like living in fear is trauma. Yes. You know, yeah. living in fear day in and day out that my dad might just get. Mm-hmm. That if they call and my dad has to pick me up at school, then they just might get. That if my dad gets his arm broken and has to go to the hospital, then he might just get mm-hmm. every single day. I, I've spoken, I have quite a few friends that have undocumented parents. Mm-hmm. They are documented, but their parents are undocumented. Mm-hmm. And I remember them telling me, my we we would get woken up in the middle of the night if some like if they heard something outside and be like, go open the door. Mm. Because they can't see us. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine being 13, 12 years old and have to open the door and be afraid in the middle of the night. 
never, they always had to open the door. They, one of my friends, they were telling me that they learned to drive when she was 10 years old because they prefer her driving and the ticket of her driving mm. than the dad getting deported. Mm. You know, like all of these, not being able to leave the city, not being able to leave the country, mm-hmm. not being able to get on an airplane because they are afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, that, the level of trauma that we're talking about here is not worth it for the sake of loss and for the sake of maintaining this level of who decides these laws anyways and who decide what's criminal and what's not criminal mm-hmm. because i talking about immigration i just heard a story of a school that was opened in a different country mm-hmm. and all of the teachers were uh, were missionaries from the us none of them had proper documentation though to work mm-hmm. but they were missionaries mm-hmm. churches paid for these They cover that. That's Mm -hmm. completely fine. Missionaries going and doing work that is absolutely illegal, whatever illegal means, Mm -hmm. in that country is absolutely acceptable. Mm -hmm. But people flying from countries that are dangerous because of more powerful countries destroying entire governments, um, that's not acceptable. You know, how dare they? Or people being with their families Mm -hmm. is not acceptable because they decided to draw these lines because powerful people decided one day to draw these lines in the world Mm -hmm. and they decided where you belonged if you were on the right or the left of this line and the line is imaginary yeah you know it's this imaginary line that we decided Mm -hmm. and so all of that is acceptable but missionaries breaking every possible law to do things whatever they want to do in the name of the gospel Mm -hmm. we're okay with that we we not only are okay with that we're going to support it financially too so yeah. that hypocrisy and that inability to think critically about what you are looking at, you know, and the, the, also the inability to, to face the other, the proximity, you know, the lack of proximity. And that's, that's the problem with I, a lot of the problem I see with Christianity. It isolates you from the other all the time because only the acceptable are in and the acceptable either pretend they are not one of the unacceptables. So nobody inside of a church is going to say they are undocumented. Right. They don't feel safe to do so. No. Um, or nobody inside of a church is going to say they are trans. They don't right. say who still feels safe saying that inside of a church. No. Um, so you either behave like the acceptables, pretend that you're unacceptable, hide your lack of acceptability that they decided you are not. Yeah. Um, or simply you don't go, you know, you're not engaged you're not engaging it, which means you never have proximity with the marginalized and your lack of proximity with the marginalized means that you have absolutely no idea what their lives look like so you're making decisions about them without ever talking to them and that is the height of arrogance mm-hmm. yeah they fight about pride they talk about pride all the time you know pride is the worst mm. could it like, what is more prideful than making decisions for somebody else? What is more prideful than thinking that you know better about somebody else without ever engaging with them mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as an equal? Because yeah. they do engage with them as a, hey, let me save you. That's not an equal. That's not engaging. That's not proximity. Mm-hmm. That's me coming to colonize you. Yeah. But if there is no proximity, no engagement as an equal, then everything you choose for me and every time you tell me you know better than me for me mm-hmm. we're talking about you pretending that you're god in my life mm. yeah take 27 steps back and think about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so because of 
I wonder if because of your identities and because of your experiences, uh, was there ever a point that your politics were different than they are now? Or have you always uh, seen things? I know you've talked about decolonizing your faith and deconstructing your faith. And that plays a big part in the way that you participate in politics. It, when you, before decolonizing your faith and deconstructing your faith, were politics different for you? What was it like participating in politics for you then versus now? Well, a lot of it changed for me when I became a citizen, um, too, because I couldn't vote right. as a resident. And um, to vote in Colombia, I have to drive all the way to Los Angeles on Sunday. Because in Colombia, we vote on Sundays, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, all, so everybody votes on Sundays. And so that day is declared like a... Everything is closed and everybody votes. That's mm -hmm. what we do on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So it's these is the same Sunday. Everybody votes. So it's a little bit different. So since voting in Colombia is on Sundays, I could never go to LA because I worked for churches. So mm -hmm. and they, I wasn't allowed to. I was allowed to only miss one Sunday a year. Um, I know <laughs> that's a, that's another conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> so I could never vote. So for you know, for years living in this country, I could never participate in voting. That's not the only way that you participate in politics, of course, you know, right. there's like, there is many, many other ways. Mm -hmm. But just because of that, I felt so distant from Colombia too. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was being told like, you know, let go of your past, let go of your ancestors, break every single possible thing that is in your ancestors that is bad, which is everything because they are crazy and they are awesome. <laughs> uh, so I felt distant from Colombia. Yeah. And then here, I couldn't participate in the same ways. And also, every time I pushed on something that made me uncomfortable, I was shut down. Mm. Um, but I didn't feel so bad about it. Like, I didn't feel like I had to push so much harder because I couldn't vote at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I was able to vote. Mm -hmm. And then I, was, I started voicing my opinion more loudly. Mm -hmm. um, and that started changing everything. But... But yeah, my engage. I mean, I would tell people like, are you voting? Because that's the other thing I've noticed too, inside of churches and inside of Christianity, um, a lot of people don't vote at all. Yeah. Because it's this idea that, well, God is in control. Mm -hmm. So it, it's fine, you know, mm -hmm. like, so they kind of yield their responsibility, their civic responsibility to, well, God is in control at the end of the day. So whether I vote or I don't vote, whatever God chooses is what God chooses which is very bizarre for me. Yeah. Um, but I remember hearing that too. I'm being like, are you voting? Are you voting? Like always telling people like, it's so important to vote because that's how I was raised, being told it's so important to vote. And I think especially as women, because the voting costed us so much more. Yeah. Having the ability to vote costed us so much more. I think that for us, it's also like, how could you not? Like, mm. I just recently had the conversation with my daughters about, um, they learned that women were allowed to vote because we had the hundred years of, you know, the law changing. And I said, well, actually, if that would have happened, I wouldn't have been able to vote still. Mm. And my daughter goes, what? Why? I'm like, because I'm not a white woman. I'm an immigrant woman uh, of color. So I wouldn't have been able to vote. Yeah. And she goes, what? She was very disrupted by these. Yeah. But yeah. even in, in that... Um, the conversations I had with my children before, and they were really little, but were not political. You know, they were about God. Mm. The conversations I have now are political and they are about divinity. Both. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So even in that, I'm practicing politics very differently because my conversation, and I don't invite my children to agree with me. Mm-hmm. I invite my children to think critically about things. Yeah. Um, you know, so we talk about like, do you think it's okay that women didn't get to vote? And when they did get to vote, mommy wouldn't have been able to vote. How do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't take a 30-year-old person with a, you know, political sciences degree to say that's not right. Right. No. Um, so yeah, even the way in which I engage with in conversations with people and um, they it infor- deconstructing and decolonizing informs the way in which I have these conversations. But before mm-hmm. politics wasn't that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Part of it because I wasn't allowed to participate in them by voting, mm-hmm. and part of it because everything was seen through the lens of the Bible. Yeah. You know, so so long as people got the Bible, who cares what we vote for? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people care plenty. Mm-hmm. And when things start changing, also for immigration, I'm like, well, I care. How's that though, right? Yeah. But it isn't until it starts affecting affecting me mm-hmm. yeah. that then yeah. I become more active in something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When I turned 18, I. Um... I didn't register right away and I didn't vote right away. And, uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember when, um, I started like taking it a little bit more seriously and voting and I was still very much involved with, um, the evangelical, very conservative churches and, uh, college and all of those things. And so when I was voting, I was still, you know, under this illusion that the Republican Party was the was God's party was like the Christian party. And so I would I would vote a straight Repu- Republican ticket. And then over time, I started thinking like, well, that's actually some of these things that we're told to value because of taking care of, um, you know, sojourners in our lands and taking care of uh, people who are impoverished and people who don't have families and they don't have anyone to care for them. We're supposed to take care of them. There are actually a lot of things in the, you know, in Republican lawmaking process and in Republican policy that don't take care of those people. And so that was really interesting to me, but I didn't take it extremely seriously. And then I had... Um, I, I got pregnant with my oldest and we didn't have health insurance. And at the mm. time, pregnancy was still considered a pre-existing condi- condition. And we tried to buy a policy and I didn't know that they could deny us a policy. So we called, you know, this insurance company and we were like, okay, we know we need in- health insurance. Um, we are unexpectedly pregnant. And so can we buy a policy from you? And so we don't have to pay for, you know, this pregnancy and this delivery out of pocket. And they said, no, oh, no, you, she, you she's already pregnant. And we were like, yeah, yeah, I'm already pregnant. <laughs> and uh, and they said, oh, no, you can't buy a policy. No, no, no. Um, that's a pre-existing condition. And I was like, well, what's a pre-existing condition? What is that? Well, it's any like uh, disease or health condition or or any anything like that, you know, that is going to. Uh, cost more money and all of these things and I was like wait but I'm gonna be paying you every month right Right. that's what it's for that's that's how it works I pay you then you help me pay my medical bills Uh, and they said no you know that's not we're not doing it you have a pre-existing condition 
And so we didn't really know what we were going to do until we talked to some friends of ours who said, you know, there's this thing called Medicaid and you can apply for Medicaid and right. they'll cover you and you can have this baby safely with good health care um, or at least some health care instead of no health care. And, uh, and you can do that. And so we, okay, we went on um, Medicaid, we got approved um, and everything was taken care of. And I was so glad because we had an extremely traumatic delivery. Uh, my daughter almost died. I almost died. It was a whole thing and required a NICU stay and all of these things. And if we didn't have Medicaid, can't imagine we wouldn't. We couldn't have done it. And now have I have a, a six year old, as well who has asthma, and. Um, sometimes Medicaid doesn't want to cover the particular medication or inhaler that he needs um, because his asthma is kind of severe. And so he needs a little bit more aggressive of an inhaler that typically wouldn't be prescribed for a child his age. But uh, so Medicaid doesn't always want to cover it. And we're, we're still on Medicaid. Um, and when I, I remember like someone saying like, well, can you buy one of the, you know, one of the inhalers to make sure that you have it because we had run out. And I said, do you know how much an inhaler costs? <laughs> I know. Do you know how much this costs? It's like $380 for a 30 day supply of this medication, yeah. you know? And I said, this is why I think that we need to have universal health care. And they, right. you know, and people got really upset. And, and um, I think I posted it on Facebook. I was like, look, I would rather pay another, you know, 30 to $70 out of my paycheck or however much it is for taxes in order to ensure that people like my kid don't, you know, turn blue when they cry. I would God. so much rather have everyone have access to life-saving medication that they really need instead of having it denied because arbitrarily someone said, oh, no, you can't. You can't have that. It's a human right. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where the church makes no sense to me. When we got pregnant with our first daughter, we worked for the church full time, both of us. Neither one of us had insurance. The church didn't pay for insurance. And we also mm -hmm. were so underpaid that when we went to, and they, the church told us, like, you have to go apply for medical then. So mm -hmm. we went and applied for medical. So the entire thing was covered. Um, because we were so below the poverty line too. Yeah. Working for a church, both of us, full time. Do you know how much time I got for maternity leave? A week. Mm. Do you know when was you know how pregnant I was the last time I went to church to work? 41 weeks and two days. Shit. God, that is terrible. But you tell me how you are all about people. Yeah. And caring for people and how it's it's all about people. Because the one that took care for me was Obama. Yeah. You know, like mm -hmm. the ones that are taking care of my family are, are those who you continue to demonize, but you continue to not show up for me or my family or anybody else mm -hmm. because the demand is come and tithe and serve, but not come and belong really, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. so yeah, I am complete. I, I, I also saw all of those things that just, the discrepancies, the hypocrisy, the you say one thing, but in your behavior, that is not at all what I see. Mm -hmm. You say that you care for people, but then the people that are here, the ones that are giving them, Caleb and I, we we're giving everything, mm -hmm. our finances, our time, everything. Mm -hmm. 
and we couldn't afford to have a child. And yeah. it's because, you know, so it's so irresponsible to get pregnant without planning. No, shut up. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. It's just, no, absolutely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I had my second daughter and we still were working at the church full time, underpaid, so still on medical. Mm-hmm. And same, she had asthma and she had a lot of things. She was three days old and she had a huge fever. So I had to go back into the hospital. Mm-hmm. All of these things that are so wildly expensive. Yeah. Just so expensive. And you did like you weren't covering for anything. Mm-hmm. You weren't as an employer. I'm not even talking as a Christian, as somebody who supposedly cares. Mm-hmm. As an employer, you weren't even doing things right and ensuring that your employees were taken care of. Yeah. So don't talk to me about how you care because you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think about uh, something that you said uh, about uh, it's so irresponsible to get pregnant without like planning. It's something about that is so bizarre to me because I, I heard the same thing. It's so irresponsible for you to get pregnant without planning. Um, but what's really interesting and funny, honestly, to me is that, okay, great. Then you need to make it mandatory for employers to pay for birth control. Or you need to let women that end up getting pregnant because birth control didn't work mm-hmm. to get an abortion. Exactly. Oh, wait, we can't? Are you going to pay for this child? No. No. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. I, I asked a question recently, not recently, it was like eight months ago, but I said, how many churches do you know or have you ever attended where they make, like, they have a specific things for disabled children? Because I know none. Mm-mm. None. But if a woman finds out that her child is going to be born with serious disabilities, if a person finds out that their child is going to be born with serious disabilities and they choose to get an abortion after that, how dare you say no to that? Mm -hmm. If you don't know what it is, like the church cannot even accommodate them. Mm -hmm. They couldn't even attend your stupid church, but you are so dead set on them having to have this baby and having to do all the things. Mm -hmm. Don't you believe that they are going to go to heaven anyways? Mm -hmm. So I don't understand. Like the, the, my biggest issue is, could you please think logically about this? Like listen mm-hmm. for a minute, because that's the problem. The, the lack of, I will not think logically about this. Abortion is wrong always. It's murder, period. Mm. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants are, are just criminals, period. Like there is this you know, gay people are wrong, period. Mm. No, can you please listen and engage and be able to think critically and logically and and perhaps for just a second consider you don't have the ultimate truth on all the things in the world. You just don't. Yeah. And so long as they don't have the ability to have those conversations, um, they are toxic people that you cannot talk to because you're not talking to a person you're talking to an indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's exhausting. It is. Yeah. Oh, it is so exhausting. Um, and once you find out that there's a whole human underneath those identities that, you know, we, like we were saying earlier, that we somehow ascribe a certain level of value to, um, a certain number to, once you find out that there is an entire human under there, um, yeah. Things shift and you start to change the way that you think. And similarly to what you said, when we were, when I have asthma too, and when I can't afford my inhaler, do you know who pays for it? 
not the church. Church doesn't right. pay for it. I go through right. every step that I have to go through to get Medicaid to cover it, or I pay right. for it out of pocket, out of my, um, you know, the, my salary. Or, I go to Mexico. Yeah. The, this country that is so bad and so terrible, and people there are so horrible. I, mm. I just drive down 20 minutes. I had a problem with my tooth recently. It was going to be about $2,400 here. Mm. I paid $300 there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because I couldn't afford $2,400 right. in the middle of a pandemic in, in my life, even if we were in the middle of a pandemic. Say. But <laughs> at the pandemic, $2,400. Right. I was like, I can't afford that. No. So we, I went down. I have a, a dentist that I totally trust there and I love them. Mm -hmm. um, it was $300. Wow. Yeah. And that's because yeah. I live in uh, uh, several things. I live 20 minutes away from the border. Mm -hmm. One, two, I'm able to cross on foot because right now the lines are eight hours long. Mm. And just because of COVID yeah. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then I speak Spanish, which changes a lot. Mm. Too. Yeah. My, my husband goes to now, like, but at the beginning, he's like, you have to come with me. I'm like, you're going to be fine. <laughs> it's fine. Now he goes on his own and he's like, it's fine. I got it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking the language also helps a lot. But mm -hmm. imagine that $300 from $2,400. Mm -hmm. Like uh, who, who can? And when I, when my daughter, she has asthma and she has a whole bunch of other wonderful things. Mm. Um, when she has things that here not only are going to cost me more than we can afford or are going to take too long because mm -hmm. we call and we like, she wasn't sleeping she was having sleep apnea, mm. which is super scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was, she started when she was like two and a half and it was so scary to like, mm -hmm. she would sit up and start gasping for air and mm. turn blue. Mm -hmm. And so we called um, to ask for an appointment. She needed to see a pulmonologist first. Yeah. And that was in January. And they said like, yep, the next appointment is June 9th. And I'm like, she, she wakes up every night. Yeah not being able to breathe and i i have the oxy oximeter oh yeah mm -hmm. um and it would be down like 80 70 mm. so i was like i can't do this mm -hmm. till june i don't even know the amount of medical conditions that are going to show up because of six months of this so i took right. her to mexico that's awesome i had to because it's like, the I only way to do it yeah, I was like, I'm not going to wait. I, I love that you made that decision for her. No, well, it got better. Then my husband, I was, I was like, something inside of me is telling me that if you go and you ask for the appointment, things uh, will be different. Uh -huh. So he did. And we got an appointment two weeks later. Stop it. Yeah, we had already taken her to Mexico and she had seen one and she had helped once we saw the pulmonologist here because yeah. we had already made some progress. Mm -hmm. But yeah, two weeks when wow. he went. My husband's white, six to blue eyes no accent mm -hmm. and because they the way they and I don't I go to the appointments with them but I don't go to appointments for my daughter alone anymore mm. because we notice the difference in how they talk to me mm -hmm. like it's condescending and like I don't know what I'm talking about and mm -hmm. I talk to my my sister's a medical doctor so I talk to her before and I tell her like tell me good questions to ask and how to ask and mm -hmm. <coughs> And I go informed, I read all the things, mm -hmm. but the way they speak to me and the way they speak when he's in the room yeah. is 100% different. Absolutely. 
we've noticed that a lot in my work with um, our my clients and our clients um, that we have in my work. And it's something that we've started offering to our families because a lot of my coworkers are white. And if we go to a doctor's appointment, whether it's with an obstetrician or, you know, a pediatrician or anything like that, if we go with, they change. Like, I know. it's so much. And, and um, we, you know, with our, with our black mothers and with our latina mothers they're like it's it's so different it when one of us is there it is and even i mean depending on our identity too so if yeah. i speak english they'll treat me differently if mm-hmm. i didn't speak english they would treat me differently mm-hmm. uh depend you know how i can communicate that's why i asked my sister yeah. like tell, give me the right words to speak mm-hmm. that's not because i want to be there and be like i know all of these things it's because i want them to treat me humanely yeah so I go prepared, but mm-hmm. isn't, isn't like, I, I've talked to my husband about this. I'm like, when have you had to think about that? Mm-hmm. He's like, never, never. I go to the doctor. I'm like, I don't know what's happening to me. Fix me. Mm. You know, wow. and I'm like, I, I can't just show up. I have to be ready. I have to read. I have to know what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. All of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I speak a certain way. Mm-hmm. All of us code mm-hmm. switch, depending on who we're talking to. Yeah. Uh, it should, we we can live in a world where we don't have to do that. Mm, yeah, that w- I, that would be amazing. I mean, the only it, the only time that I have really felt that I need to do that is when it comes to like going to see a gynecologist. When it comes to women's health, if you're having like the only that's probably been the only time that I've really experienced like I need to have some idea of what's wrong with me. And I have to know like some kind of I need to think about the questions that I need to ask and things like that. Um, and that was uh, it, the first time that I did that really was probably about a year and a half ago. And when I when I did that, I was like, I have been trying to figure this out for so long. I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with me for so long and seeing the doctor and kind of being told uh, by different doctors, like, you're fine, you know, it's normal, that's normal, this is okay, it's fine that you're in pain every day, it's not a problem, you're fine, that's, totally. that's normal for, for women, which, if you talk to a woman, <laughs> if you talk to a lot of other women, they're like, no, that's not normal, and, you know, no. and going to the doctor and saying, like, I'm in excruciating pain, Every day, I can't go to work when I'm on my period. I can't leave my house when I'm on my period. I can't get out of bed. Um, you know, and all of these different things. And it, so if you ask another woman, she's going to say, no, that's not normal. But if you go to the doctor, they're going to say, it's normal. You you know, you're fine. It's just cramps. It's, you know, it's whatever. And um, the, I think the first time that I said, no, it's not normal. This I can't function. You don't yeah. understand. Um and having to push back, that was, that was the scariest, being in a doctor's office and saying, no, it is not okay. You have to, right. and, and having to have some prior knowledge of that. And I think that, like I said, having that experience once, I cannot imagine having to go to the, having to go to the doctor and have that every time. Or, or be afraid that you're going to get hurt. Yeah. You know, I got, I went to the dog, I went to the ER, I think five times with stomach pain. Mm. And every time they were like, it's just, you have to stop eating certain things. You're probably allergic. I'm like, I don't think so. 
Mm. No, I don't think so. But they kept saying the same thing and they kept just sending me home with some pain pills. Mm. And it wasn't until I saw a, a doctor that was not an American, US American. And this doctor kept saying like, this isn't normal. Like you've been here five times. Yeah. This isn't normal. So he did all these scans and all of these things. And he was like, I can't find anything. I just can't find anything. Mm. And I was like, okay. He's like, but I, I don't, you know, go home with this pain medicine and I, I will continue to dig. And I thought, okay, fine, whatever. I really thought he was just wanted to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. He called me 40 minutes later. I had like, I was home. He mm-hmm. called me and he goes, you need to come in. You need surgery right now. Oh my God. So they had to take 10, centi- 10 centimeters. I don't know what that is in inches. Anyways, 10 centimeters <laughs> off my intestine. Mm. Um, I had a Meckel's diverticula, which is super random and weird. Mm. And nobody had, like the, they say, usually they find it before people turn 10. And it's very rare in women. Usually it's only men. Mm-hmm. But I... I am exceptional like that, I guess. <laughs> so, so it had it, it was infected and it was about to burst, mm. and so it was I was going to go into sepsis, mm. and so they had to cut it off. I was in the hospital for ten days, and it was because this one doctor was like, "No, it's not normal to have pain." But I was sent back home five times before. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah. Like five times, and I kept saying, "Like this isn't normal pain." They were like, just stop eating rice. I'm like, I at this point, I am only I was only drinking chicken like bone broth. Mm. That's all I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Drinking. Wow. Because I couldn't handle anything else because of the pain. Right. So I was like, I don't think it's the food because if, if I'm allergic to bone broth, then we're screwed here. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah. Uh but yeah, five times. Mm-hmm. Is that? And then I had to come back because I had pain again. And to this day, it's been four years and I still have pain and we don't know what it is. I mean, some of the, a lot of the very intense pain was resolved with the surgery, but to this day, I keep going and they're like, we don't know what you have. Mm. I'm like, okay. And so I said, can I, can I see a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist then? Mm -hmm. Because I think that it's now, you know, anxiety and trauma. Yeah. No, that's not it. I'm like, okay. Oh my God. Sounds great. Mm. So it's this, it's just wild to me how we've moved so far away from believing certain people, mm-hmm. you know, from, from listening and from saying like, well, you're not an expert. Therefore I'm like, no, but I am an expert on my body. Yeah. Um, I am telling you, this doesn't feel right. It's not normal. Mm-hmm. And that should be enough for people to look at the other and say like, okay, I believe your life experience, but we don't. Mm-hmm. You see everything through mine. And it's like, well, if, if, if it doesn't bother me, then I don't understand why it's bothering you. We just so happen to be two different people. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I know. Wild. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, yeah, it's, it changes so much about, uh, about everything. About everything. Because so many things. I, I was talking with uh, someone else um, on, the, on the last episode um and he kept saying it really would just take a few policy changes like i you know the reality that um you are in pain every day and that you can go to the doctor and be sent home five times because they don't believe you if we had policies in place that said no you have to believe people when they tell you and they continue to come back and something is wrong i want you to find out what's wrong with me if we had policies in place that ensured that everyone got 
quality medical care, that everyone right. got quality health care because it is a human right and because it shouldn't change based on your gender, your sexuality, your 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 race, um, your cultural income. identity, your income, anything like that. None of those things should impact the level of health care that you receive. And so really, if we implemented a few policy changes, we I can't expect that everyone would abide by them because right. white supremacy is is there and it is right. real um but there would be repercussions if we if we implemented policy change if in in that area in healthcare if we even just funded women's healthcare right and even funded research into women's health that could change so many lives if we funded abortion, if we funded birth control, if we offered uh, comprehensive sex education in schools, especially for the girls, especially for the girls. That could change so much. I know. Just the, even the simple thing of doctors and nurses and everybody involved have to go to school and learn all of these things that are you know, like procedures and how to manage things, but they don't have to learn about biases. Mm. And, you know, if, if that were mandatory too, if you, we have to have the conversation on biases, we have to have the conversation on your biases and not the assumption that because you're a doctor, you're a good person. Like, mm. no, not necessarily. And having to address those things, you know, and having to dismantle the hierarchies mm. because the, the problem is that doctors are in the hierarchy Mm -hmm. doctors are above all of us mm -hmm. just yeah. like pastors yeah. are above all of us just like mm -hmm. so dismantling that hierarchy and opening up room for people to say like no you're wrong mm -hmm. you know and, and yeah. normalizing that the hierarchies are not helping us at all mm -hmm. and we have to dismantle hierarchies and understand that we are all human beings and we are and your tools might help me today and that's totally fine but that doesn't mean that you're above me at all mm-hmm yeah period yeah there's so much uh about about all of that that is just like uh, it it is really interesting because for me i have only for myself from my doctors have only ever been um white but my kids doctors um have been of all different races and all different ethnicities and it's really interesting to interact with doctors of different races doctors for my children who are of different races and to experience the change in their care the way they talk to my children the way they interact with my children and I think the the thing that for me has been so different about it is that uh, one of my one of my sons was born with something that's called a hypospadias where his urethra is too short and so the mm. opening comes out like is like under his penis and so he had to have corrective surgery when he was a baby and um his uh his doctor his pediatrician um you know said like okay here's where we're gonna send you and this is the this is the pediatric um urologist we're gonna send you to and all of these things and um his pediatrician is um a man of color and he uh my son was a baby at the time but he still looked at my son and he said, "Okay, I'm gonna look in. I'm gonna look at your diaper area now. It's only okay for mommy, daddy, and the doctor. No one else." Mm -hmm. And he said that to my like eight month old, mm -hmm. you know. 
And that was something that was important to him. I've never, I, no other doctor has ever said anything like that when they've examined my infant. Um, you know, and I've had, they, my kids have had lots of different doctors and things like that. And then um, seeing the level of care that we received from him, seeing the level of care that um, my son then received when he had his surgery and his, um, his surgeon was a black woman and she was incredible and she I think she was like she said she was eight months pregnant when she performed his surgery and was on her feet for so long and I'm like I can barely just stand normal at all (laughs) when I'm eight months pregnant for that long and seeing again that that level of care there's something different when I um when my kids have doctors and nurses who our who are BIPOC there is yeah. something different, and I don't think that it's just because we. I, I'm sure that part of it is because of experiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's. I think. There, sorry, go ahead. No, I was. Ju- I was just gonna say there's this level of empathy that I think, like it accompanies. Yeah. Those doctors and those nurses. Yeah. I I talked about trust one time with people and about how I don't like who feels safe in my presence, you know, recognizing who feels safe in our presence. Mm -hmm. And the reason I feel safe in the presence of certain people groups, um, like I feel safe in the presence of a trans black woman, Mm -hmm. chances are she won't feel safe in mine, but I feel safe in hers Mm -hmm. is because she has been so marginalized in this society that she is more used to seeing the other. Mm-hmm. She's used to feeling the weight of oppression. So she won't be one to yield it against another. <clears throat> yeah, That's what we see behind so many movements of liberation and so many movements of um, transforming societies and communities. We see the most marginalized behind it. Mm-hmm. Now they get co-opted and then the faces that get thrown in there are different. Yeah. But if you look deep enough, every time the face is the face of a marginalized person that has been mistreated and, you know, and it's fighting not for themselves. They are fighting for all of us together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is something that privilege does to you that doesn't allow you to see that. Mm-hmm. You know, privilege blinds you and then you're not fighting for the most, most marginalized because you don't feel their pain. Yeah. Um, you just don't. That's why it bothers me tremendously to see books about oppression by white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, you know, rich. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, you've ne- you never felt this. You're writing from your privilege. Yeah. And chances are the book is great because you sat down and you were able to read all of the research and you were able to read all of the stories and it wasn't destroying you every Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. you know? So I've been writing about decolonizing faith, for instance, and when I have to read about the stories, I've been reading the journals of the colonizers and reading the way they talk about my ancestors is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I have to stop and weep. Mm -hmm. And I have to stop a week, not only because of how they saw him, but also because of how they made me see them too. And in turn, made me see myself of this, the self-hatred that they implanted into me and that I see in all of our communities south of the U.S. border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it breaks my heart. And so I, when I write about deconstructing faith, I'm talking about that too. When I write about uh, what, what it 
deconstructing faith for a person of color, for a BIPOC, for especially for indigenous and black people Mm -hmm. is completely different than deconstructing faith for a white person. Mm -hmm. Because the, the pain of all of the pain that white people feel from the oppression of Christianity, of toxic Christianity is there. And then you mount on top of that, the racial oppression. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, it's the same for women and men, you know, you, on top of all the pain that toxic Christianity puts on men, Mm -hmm. you're going to mount on top of that, all the gender oppression for non-binary people, for women, for gay people, for LGBTQ community in general and Mm women. Um, so understanding all of that. So it's hard for me when I see books about gender equality by white cisgender heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. And then they sell like hotcakes. And I think, of yeah. course, your book is good and your book is clean and you can read it because it didn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's different. You're co-opting the pain of somebody else. Yeah. But and that's harmful again. Because mm-hmm. it again erases and it again silences again. Yeah. But if you look at the most marginalized, you'll realize they would never do that. Like they would never, you know, they would they mm-hmm. would never harm another person because they felt what it fe- they they felt the pressure and they felt the weight mm-hmm. of oppression on their shoulders, mm-hmm. and they don't want anybody else to feel it. Yeah. So it changes for me. Like I, I look at my kids' teachers mm-hmm. and I look at my doctors mm-hmm. and I look at the school. I, I've told the school, I, I was able to meet with my kids at school and I said, I chose this school not because it was great, though it is, um, but because my actual school in my neighborhood mm-hmm. was 83% white. Wow. And I wasn't going to do that to my kids. Right. So my kids go to a charter mm-hmm. because nope my brown kids with their brown mom we're not going to go to an 83% school white with like 95% white educators mm-hmm. um I, I i i don't think i can even explain how it just felt wrong to do that to my kids so this is school that i go to is very diverse um and they listen and they are you know their diversity in the board and in their staff is not great but they are working on it and they, we, we talk about it mm-hmm. so i told them like i don't care so much about academics um they are important i want my kids to learn but the reason i chose it was because you had a willingness to invite diversity mm-hmm. in here and that mattered to me and you had a willingness to talk about these very very uncomfortable topics for white people yeah so and because I, I know that, I know that my kids having friends that are from marginalized identities is going to change the way in which they engage with the world because mm-hmm. those kids engage with the world differently. Yeah. And that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Exposing myself and others to the, the other all the time, finding places where I can be close, like closeness to the other is important to me. Yeah. Because I am the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to make sure that I'm being respectful of your time, but I I want to ask one last question of, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um I think that a lot of us feel that there's a moral obligation to vote in this particular election. I think a lot of people feel that there's a moral obligation to vote in all elections, but this one it feels particularly um 
difficult. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, your perspective brings to the table is seeing the other and involving the other and appreciating the other. And in an election like the one that we're facing right now, that's difficult because we have two old, white, rich men who are cis-hetero running for the office of president of the United States. And so that is really difficult. And there are a lot of things um, that feel very um, urgent right now. Yeah. And with all of that happening, um, and yet we have on, on one side we have um, we have Trump, who is openly racist, openly uh, misogynistic, openly all of these things, and completely against anyone who is the other, right? Anyone who yeah. is not just like him. And but then on the other hand, we have Biden, who is not great either. Um, it feels like a kind of a more cleaned up version. Of, if Absolutely. I, yeah, it, it, that's how it feels. So. Um, in this particular election, voting is difficult. Voting is, um, is important, but it is tough to kind of gauge between in, in making a decision, I guess. Um, and so what do you think when it comes to trying to navigate the, the ethics and the morality (laughs) of this particular election, what is your viewpoint and how are you um, how are you letting uh, your deconstructed and decolonized mindset and, and faith guide you into this decision and how do you make an ethical moral decision? Yeah. Well, I think that as, as we've been speaking this whole time, I listen to the most marginalized voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most marginalized voices tell us, how are we going to be harmed less? You know, mm-hmm. how are they going to be harmless? Because harm will continue to be done until we dismantle white supremacy, until we dismantle patriarchy, until we dismantle pa- capitalism. Harm will continue to be done. But how will they be harmed less? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the question that people have to ask. I, I, I am voting for not just for a president, but also for policies and locally, because local elections matter a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading and I'm looking at the, the people that are right there and I'm seeing, okay, how will the most marginalized be harmed less by the policies in place by all of these people? Yeah. But beyond that, we have to think about um, power dynamics. So if you have power with another person, how they vote is kind of not your problem Mm -hmm. because the work of dismantling the system is not theirs. It's yours, Mm. you know? So I've had people, I am not voting for Biden. Um, Obviously I'm not voting for Trump. Mm -hmm. I could never. I live in California, however, and I understand that living in California, it's going to be a blue state, because we have the electoral college, we, we it's going to be a blue state. Mm-hmm. So I am going to vote for, you know, an indigenous man that I respect and I get to. Mm. Um, and I've had a lot of white people tell me that that's a vote for Trump. And no, 
you don't get to put that on me. I'm an immigrant from, like, you don't get to put Trump, the, the fact that Trump is president has nothing to do with an immigrant from Colombia. Right. Nothing. I didn't put Trump there. Mm-hmm. White people put Trump there. Mm-hmm. So it is not my responsibility to take Trump down either. And I do, nonetheless, because every conversation I have, every time that I say that he's being hypocritical, every time that I expose his lies, every time that I use whatever platform I have to be able to expose how ridiculous this man is, mm-hmm. I am opposing Trump. Right. Like opposing him doesn't mean that I vote against him only. Mm-hmm. Um but asking the marginalized to vote to do something is oppression in itself, too. Mm-hmm. We, we are all adults, so we get to make the decisions that we make. Now, if I were in Ohio, I would vote for Biden. Mm. You know, if I were in Florida, I would vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. Chances are, if I were not in New York or California, I would vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. But I get to vote for Mark Charles, and I'm excited about that. And I get to have this second of joy where my vote is for an indigenous Native American man that in every email greets in his native language mm. and says where he is by, by acknowledging the land that he's on. He doesn't say, I'm in Chicago. He acknowledges the land. Mm-hmm. I get the joy yeah. because the, the moments of joy for, for marginalized people are, are not a lot. Mm-hmm. So let me have the joy of voting for a native man who greets in the native language of his and acknowledges the land that he's standing on. I get to have that. In the meantime, I will continue to scream that Trump is a hypocritical, narcissistic, sociopathic, dangerous man, and he must be removed from office. Mm-hmm. And I will re- and I will scream that in every platform that I have, and I will scream that to friends and family, which has costed me a lot of relationships. Yeah. So I, I'll talk to my kids about it. You know, I haven't told my kids who, like who they should vote for if they could vote. Mm-hmm. I've told them the facts of the candidates and they themselves chose they would never vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing it by exposing my children to truth and not telling them we vote Republican, period. Mm-hmm. So the moral obligation we have is to say, how, how can I, in the place that I am with the privilege that I have, cause the least amount of damage or fight so that the most the most marginalized are harmed the least amount Mm -hmm. what does that mean for me because it's not prescriptive right right because residents that can vote undocumented immigrants that can vote they still get to participate politically in some way so what with the privilege that i have standing in the shoes that i am what does it mean for me to fight for those who are the most harmed so that they are harmed the least amount. Mm-hmm. I think that's the moral and ethical uh, response to what we're looking, to what we're facing right now with Trump, but what we face in every single one of the elections. Right now, as you said, however, I mean, we're talking about moving towards nationalism and moving towards a theocracy where we put dictate dictator moves are are happening behind the scenes right now. Yeah. So right now we're talking about a democracy continuing to have a, a like at least the illusion of a democracy versus not having it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. So it matters a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That I think that was. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't ultimately matter what I think of what you said, but I appreciate it nonetheless. It's it, it is. 
really um i think it's something that everyone that i know is struggling with that and everyone that i know is saying how do we do this um i know and and it's really uh i was talking on the last episode too actually with uh with my guest about uh, mark charles and it was really fascinating to me that i found him on twitter i didn't even know that he was running until like i don't know few months ago and I happened upon him on Twitter and I thought why isn't this news like he's why isn't this like a big deal that everyone is talking about because it's an it's an indigenous person who is running for president this is huge this is massive in our nation's history and why aren't people talking about it and and then uh it took a while for it to sink in oh there's like the reason that people are not talking about it. The reason that it is not a huge deal that everyone knows about is because he's an indigenous person. Right. Right. And I should say too, if you're a white person in California or New York, it looks different for you too. Because the only reason I'm voting for Mark Charles is because I want to have the joy of voting for an indigenous man. Mm. I don't know that white people get to have the joy of voting for an indigenous man right now. Right. They have to vote for whoever makes the least amount of harm, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. that would be Mark Charles. However, Mark Charles, it's not going to win. And we know that. Right. So it it, it looks different depending on what I said, depending on your level of privilege. um, It matters looking through that. What is my responsibility? How do I use my privilege in the best possible way so that those that have the least amount of privilege are going to be somewhat taken care of they are going to be a little bit better off you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. it matters yeah yeah absolutely well, joe thank you so so much i really appreciate i had a wonderful time talking with you and i so appreciate you thank you thank you so much i had a great time too thank you. i think that uh my kids didn't walk in once which is both very exciting and very alarming. <laughs> I know that feeling. I'm at my sister's apartment right now because my husband is <laughs> home and I couldn't trust my kids not to walk in the room. I know. I, either my husband did a phenomenal, because he's home. Yeah. So either he did a phenomenal job or <laughs> my kids are eating a lot of candy and watching some watching strange <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mine, mine yeah. would be doing the same thing. <laughs> we'll figure it out yeah yeah well joe where can people find you if they'd like to learn from you support you where can they find you um i write a lot on instagram um especially because i want to everything that i speak about i want it to be accessible mm-hmm. for everybody so i write on instagram i also post it on facebook it's just joe Luman, my name and like no hyphens no nothing um, and then I write a lot on t- Twitter, though Twitter is different, and yeah. I fight a lot on Twitter too. Uh, <laughs> and I have a Patreon where I share um, journal prompts every month to decolonize certain aspects of our faith and of our spirituality. Um, and then I have monthly conversations with people there too. So, so yeah, that's awesome. where they can find me. Great. Or in San Diego, walking around the beach. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. We'll make sure to link all of that in the liner notes for everyone. And again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Tune in next week to hear more perspectives approaching political structures when we will be highlighting LGBTQIA plus issues 
grassroots activism, climate change, and more. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Joe Lumen, for joining me. For more of Joe's work, follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Joe Lumen or support her on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Joe Lumen. Links to Joe's social media and Patreon platforms are also available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.